Good morning. You know, it's been a great last several days. I think back to Wednesday, we can always drive a stake down somewhere, but on Wednesday night, we had our newest member of this family here at Lehman. Uh, when Jana Godby obeyed the gospel, it was a moment of rejoicing, and we're so grateful for her decision to be obedient to Christ and the fact that she's now laboring alongside of us. It was a great addition. And I would be ignoring the obvious if I didn't say it was a great day for the Pollards when our count went up by one. The, the next, well, it started the next day, went into Friday morning uh, when Carl and Emily had our first grandchild. Uh, I, I want to confess in advance and ask for forgiveness for all the obnoxiousness that Kathy will perpetrate in the days to come. But it is a, it's a joy. We're thankful for that. And then... The retreat was a unqualified success. We had over 80 men from 12 different congregations, a great many men who are Lehman members who had not been to a men's retreat before who were there, and it was edifying, upbuilding. Matt Wallen did a fantastic job, really challenged us. It was really relevant, and I believe that we're much better for that. I appreciate our elders for their vision and their foresight in having events like these, and also the example they set by being there and being a part of that, showing their support for it. And so we're thankful, thankful that that occurred and grateful that we have another chance to uh, engage in fellowship. We're going to worship now and then we'll be heading into uh, the multi-purpose room. If you ever hear it called NPR, that's what it is, the multi-purpose room. And we'll be eating a meal together and then we'll come back here and we'll worship. It will not be a singing service, it will be uh, a, an early afternoon uh, Sunday night service. So we invite you to be a part of that and be a part of that fellowship together. You know, I don't know that Israel ever stood taller than the day in which they climbed over the walls that God had caused to crumble as the result of their obeying Him and taking the city of Jericho. As they go through the city and they are experiencing this great triumph, it is a, an event that is so great that New Testament writers are going to look back and refer to the amazing things that happened that day. We read about Jericho in Hebrews chapter 11 as an example of a faith that does what God wants us to do. In fact, when we think about the incredible nature of what occurs on the day in which Jericho is taken by the children of Israel, it was a day of great victory. It was a route that was so significant that not a single person lost their life in the taking of that city. It was a demonstration to the Israelites that against overwhelming odds in which they were decided underdogs, that God more than evened things. And through the execution of God's plan, if they would put their trust in Him, God was going to allow them to see things so great they could not have imagined that they were capable of that. And they were because of God's help. That's what makes what happens next all the more incredible. When we come to consider that such a great victory had been won in such unlikely ways, and now you find Israel facing a very beatable enemy in Ai, you'll notice that there's a change in focus and a change in emphasis. It goes from the victory of a nation to the disobedience of a man. And I want you to think about that man. When we come to examine that man, he is laid out for us in Scripture as one who had partaken in that battle in Jericho. Here's a man 
who is an Israelite, a chosen one. He's a man who's a leader because he's in the army. He is a man who would have stood shoulder to shoulder with all the other Israelites who were making their way into the city. His voice would have been heard in shouting along with all the other Israelites as they are conquering the city. His sword would have drawn destructive blows against the enemies that day. He was a man, though, who took a very fateful detour while inside the confines of that city. It was a detour that would not only alter the course of his life, but it would also change the course of his family's life, according to Joshua 7 and verse 25. And not only that, it would change the lives permanently of 36 families in Israel who lost a son or a husband or a father that day as they fell in battle to the people of Ai. Achan was that man. When we think about Achan, we think about where he came from. Achan was a man who was from the tribe of Judah, the same tribe from which the Messiah was going to come. He was a man who came from a heritage that not only included Judah, but he was a man who had three other ancestors who were drawn out for us roughly in 1 Chronicles 2, 3 through 7. They were faithful men. They were obedient men. But to this day, Achan lives in infamy. As the troubler of Israel, 1 Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 7. We know what takes place as we begin to read in Joshua chapter 7. That Joshua introduces us to Achan. Achan, whose name is Achor, is a man who is involved in this taking of the city of Jericho. And as he takes the city, he's the man who takes those things that were under the ban. They were devoted to God. This was the first city in the conquest. And so this was a city that was devoted to God. They were to leave all of that spoil for God. They were to destroy it and they were not to take anything. But Achan couldn't help himself. He takes those things that were restricted, that were banned. And there's a process that takes place in Joshua chapter 7. And you got to realize that he's got to feel like the noose is tightening as God sends Joshua through the process of casting lots. And as it narrows down and the focus is squarely on Achan, he realizes that his number is up. And now when he's discovered and he has nowhere to hide, Joshua speaks to him and he says, and it sounds like to me a gentle and compassionate voice, he says, my son, tell me what you have done. Give glory to God. Give to the Lord his praise. Don't hide it from me. And when Achan says what he's done, it costs him, but it also costs the nation. God had warned that if someone were to take one of the devoted things and keep it for themselves, not only would it bring trouble on them, it would bring trouble on the nation. This is really the low point of the conquest. The conquest is the greatest generation of the nation of Israel's history. But this is the dark spot on the resume of taking the city. And I believe as we examine Joshua chapter 7, there are lessons that Israel, that Joshua, that Achan, and that we learn about one man who was conquered. This man was conquered by himself and by his desires. It's interesting as you look in Joshua chapter 9 that there are several words that are used to discuss the destruction and the disobedience of the people. Israel is described as those who have trespassed, who have transgressed, who have deceived, who have taken of the accursed things, who did this dishonorable or this disgraceful thing. It's simply called sin. It's called coveting. It's called trouble. 
And as we walk through this, I believe we learned several lessons from one man who was conquered by sin. The first thing that we learn as we look at Joshua chapter 7 is that sin affects God. God is disturbed. The Bible says that God's anger is against the children of Israel. And maybe as we read this, we wonder, why does God focus his anger on all of the nations since this was the transgression of one man? Well, first of all, in chapter 6 and verse 18, God has said that you're not to do this. And if you do this, then there'll be trouble for the nation. But I wonder, as Achan is walking through and plundering the city of Jericho, how difficult would it have been for him to have gotten that Babylonian robe and that silver and that wedge of gold, all of that stuff without somebody seeing him? Were there others who were complicit? Were there others who saw and said nothing? You know, one of the major events that are happening in our nation right now occurred in the city next door to uh, the uh, state next door to us because there were those who had the power who did not act and they were culpable, though they did not cause the, the problem that existed. That's what happens on the day in which Achan takes of the plunder. Surely there were others around. But the word that describes the events that happened that day is the word trouble. It's very interesting. That in Joshua chapter 7, there's trouble. God warns that there's going to be trouble that day if they take of those devoted things in chapter 6 and verse 18. And at the climax of the story, the word trouble is found twice. But when we think about trouble, the word for Achan in 1 Chronicles 2 and verse 7, the word Achar means disaster and trouble. There was trouble that day. There was trouble for Israel the first time they squared off against their enemy at Ai. Joshua was greatly troubled when he finds out that they can't stand before their enemies. Israel goes to great trouble to try to find out who the culprit was through the casting of lots. And when all is said and done, Achan and his family and his possessions are all buried in a place known as the Valley of Trouble. God is indicating to us that sin, all sin, is personal and it affects him. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 39 that Joseph is in Egypt, he's been sold into slavery, and he comes to take care of a house of a man named Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife in Genesis chapter 39 tries to seduce him to get him to be immoral with her? If Joseph had given in to that, he would have sinned against Potiphar. He would have sinned against Potiphar's wife. He would have sinned against his own future wife. He would have sinned against himself. And yet he was right when he says, how can I do this great evil and sin against God? Genesis 39 and verse 9. What about David? On the occasion in which David gives in to his lust to Bathsheba, in doing what he does, he sins against her. And her husband Uriah, against Joab, the leader of the Israelite army, against the entire army who sees what takes place when they withdraw and they leave Uriah to be killed. He sins against his own family and he sins against himself. And yet wasn't David right when he says in Psalm 51 and verse 4, against you, you only, he says to God, have I sinned and done this great evil. You know, when we sin, we fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 and verse 23. And in sinning, we come to understand that in falling short of the glory of God, that we hurt, our sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59 and verse 2. In the Old Testament, God says through Habakkuk the prophet that God is of purer eyes than to look upon evil and he cannot behold wrongdoing. Habakkuk 1 and verse 13 or in Psalm 34 and verse 16 that the eyes of the Lord are against evildoers. Achan did not 
foresee this as he should. But we learn from what takes place when this one man was conquered by sin that sin affects God. There's no shortcoming or failure or sin in my life where God is not touched by that. It impacts him in the most personal and profound way. But the second thing that we notice as we look at Joshua chapter 7 is that sin brings about a time when you should stop praying and you should start acting. We see that in verse 6 through 13. In Joshua chapter 7 and verse 5, the children of Israel have spied out the the situation and the spies come back and say, we only need to send two or 3,000 men into battle. And so they go and fight. And in the disaster of the battle, they retreat. And as they retreat, Joshua is devastated. He reaches out in a desperate plea and he starts praying to God. And to me, it sounds like the prayers that Moses prays in the Exodus and in the, the wandering through the wilderness. He doesn't know what's gone wrong. and He doesn't know what to do. He's afraid. And so certainly it's right that he should fall on his knees to God in prayer. And he begins to wonder, has God brought us across the Jordan River just so that we'd be slaughtered? He's worrying and wondering, are, are the armies, my army, is it going to be able to stand in the face of the enemy now that they've been defeated? And perhaps he's wondering, what about all these other nations? Will they be emboldened by what happened at Ai? And will they unite against us? And in the midst of his praying, we see that God speaks in what would be classified as something less than a gentle and compassionate voice. And he essentially says, what's the problem? Get up. And he informs Joshua what's behind the defeated Ai. And it points out the fact that there comes a time in the things that we're facing, especially when there's sin in our lives or sin in the camp, where it's time to stop praying and it's time to start acting. That prayer is not a substitute for repentance or obedience. All the praying in the world doesn't change our state if we don't change. And so we learn from Achan and his disobedience that there's a time to stop praying and a time to start acting. But third, from Joshua chapter 7, we see that sin's tentacle invade the lives of many. We see that in verse 12. When we think about Achan, Achan's sin certainly affected him, but it also affected his family. It affected his possessions. It affected those 36 families, those individuals who lost lives, and it also struck fear and concern into the nation. They are just getting started in conquering the land. They've got one victory, and now they've got one loss, and they have no idea what the future holds. The sin of Achan invaded the lives of everybody around him. It wasn't all that long ago that I heard a talk show host receive a call from a caller who said, look, I really don't care if Tom marries Harry or if Sally aborts her baby or any of that. I'm just concerned that the president is putting our grand, my grandchildren into deep debt. For him, fiscal conservatism or money was the only thing that mattered and nothing else did. He said that none of the other parts affect me. I wonder if Israel felt that way that day when Achan's sin impacted them. Here's something for us to remember about sin. We reap what we sow. We reap more than we sow. We reap longer than we sow. And sometimes we reap what others sow. You know, we understand that any nation, it's true, that if they live in rebellion against the will of God, that sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 14 and verse 34. 
And if that reproach comes to a point in which God acts in judgment against a nation, those that are innocent will suffer along with the majority who are in sin. Later on in Israel's history, when it's Judah, Judah goes into Babylonian captivity. Because of the sin of the majority, you also have Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who go into captivity along with them. The sin that we do can affect other people from the national level all the way down to the local level. In my life, when I sin, it may impact those that I care the most about. It certainly worked that way on the day that Achan sinned. We also learn from Achan that sin's consequences are inevitable. We see that in verse 16 through 21. It was right in the middle of the reading that was done so well by Barry a moment ago. When you see what happens, the idea is very clear that crime pays. That one day the sinner must stand at the pay window and receive what's been done. I wonder what's going through Achan's mind when God carries Joshua through the process of casting lots. And the lot goes to the tribe of Judah. And then the lot goes to the family of the Zerahites. And then the lot goes to the household of Zabdi. And then it finally goes down to the man Achan. I don't know, maybe Achan had been rationalizing in his mind. What I'm doing is not a big deal. This is not going, it's not that serious a matter. Surely no one will notice and no one will care. And yet there's an eternal truth that Paul gives us in Romans 6:23 when he says the wages of sin is death. Solomon's going to say in his lifetime, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Yet though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I know that it will be well with those that fear God who fear him openly and it shall not be well with those who do not fear the Lord, whose lives are like a shadow because they do not fear God. Ecclesiastes 8, 11 through 13. As we look at Achan, we learn that sin's consequences are inevitable. We also see that sin craves secrecy. We see this in two ways. First of all, Achan did not give up that he was responsible or guilty until the process had come to the fact that there was no way around his acknowledging that it was him. But second, you'll remember that Achan, in the midst of this, he takes all that spoil and he places it under his tent. He hides it because that's how sin is. I know that we live in a time in which some will practice sin openly and brazenly, but so often it's our tendency, it's our habit to try to hide the sin of our lives. Jesus says in John chapter 3 verse 19 that he came into the world to, to bring light into the world and those that love the light are drawn to him, but those whose deeds are evil, they hate the light because they don't want their deeds exposed. That was Achan that day. He wanted it all to be kept under the cover of darkness. You know, those who engage in adulterous affairs will try to keep that from being seen by the light of day. Those who are enslaved to pornography like to try to keep that from anybody else's attention. Or perhaps those who struggle with uh, drunkenness and alcoholism are trying to keep that from the outside world. Those who engage in false teaching often try to do so in secrecy. Galatians 2, 4 and 2 Peter 2 and verse 1. If we want to do something and yet we don't want anybody else to find out about it, that ought to be a red flag for us and a, a signal of danger in our spiritual lives. Achan shows us that sin craves secrecy. We also see that sin is a growing thing, not in a good way, but sin 
is added to sin. That's what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 30 in verse 1. You know, we can't do it now except through Scripture, but if we were to interview Achan and were to ask him about the events of that day, we might say, what happened, Achan, in your life? And I suppose he would start here by saying, I saw. I saw among those spoils a goodly Babylonian garment. I saw this silver and I saw this wedge of gold. And when I saw it, I, it, was, it looked so good. How much of our life do we get in trouble with sin because of our eyes? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 22 that the eye is the light of the body. He's talking about material things there. And he says if the eye is good, it's healthy, it's light. But if the eye is bad, in other words, if what we see is not that which honors God and it draws us away from God, then the whole body is darkness. Achan's eye was bad. He saw and then he would say, he does say, I coveted. That's the 10th commandment under the law of Moses. Uh, covet is an unholy desire for what belongs to someone else. And the unholy desire leads to an unholy action. Theft, adultery, all sin begins by desiring what belongs to someone else. Achan understood, or should have, that all that was in that city belonged to God, and yet he wanted it for himself. And then he said, I took it. He actually takes possession of those things that God has said you're not to do in Joshua chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. And then he said, I hid it. That should have been a signal to him, shouldn't it? The fact that he wanted it hidden. Had he thought it through, where was he going to spend the silver and the gold that he had gotten in that battle? Uh, that battle? Where was he going to wear that robe? And how was he going to pass off what had happened there? How was he going to do, tell them how he had recently gotten rich with all that he had sold? And so that initial desire was replaced with a desire to hide. And that's a tendency as old as sin. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve after they have sinned. What do they do first thing? They go and they hide. They hide from God because that's how sin grows in the life. And although he could not say it except posthumously by his example, he would say, I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid, and I died. The wages of sin is death. You know, from as early as the Garden of Eden, we see the same thing in Eve, that she saw those, that tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and she desired what was not lawfully hers to have, and she took it, and she hid with her husband, and she died spiritually. What does James say in James 1 and verse 13? He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. And lust when it is conceived brings forth sin. And sin when it is finished brings forth death. Sin is a growing entity, which Achan learned that day. You know, when we think about the events that took place, it wasn't the end of the story, thankfully, and there was so much to be learned in this relatively brief period of time. The highest of highs for Israel's history to that point and the lowest of low in two chapters. And the difference was their reaction. I want to share very quickly five takeaways that we can learn from the book of Joshua in chapters 6 and 7 and the events of Achan. The first thing that we need to recall when we look at the story is that God keeps his promises. God promised in Joshua 6 and verse 2 that he would be with the Israelites as they did what he said, that he would give them the city and God kept his promise. He gave them Jericho. God promised 
that if you take of the things that are, uh, are devoted to me under the ban, then there will be a problem for the nation of Israel. God keeps his promises. You know, as we strive to live in the light of Jesus Christ, what a great reassurance that is for us. Every time we bow our knee in prayer, we need to remember that the God we serve is a God who keeps his promises. Every time we go into his word and we find the promises that he has set aside for his children, we can believe that God keeps his word. When we consider the home in heaven that he's promised us, we can take God at his word because God keeps his promises. But also we learn from this that God's promises are still conditional. God has promised to give a crown, but he gives it to those who are faithful. Revelation 2 and verse 10. God promises to deliver us from temptation if we remove ourselves from evil. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, if we take that way of escape, if we resist the devil and draw near to God, James chapter 4 and verse 8. God has promised salvation to everyone that obeys him. Hebrews 5 and verse 9, as Chuck said as he was leading us in the Lord's Supper observance this morning, he read Revelation 5 and verse 9, the blood of Christ is for every nation, it's for all people. God doesn't restrict that. God's promises, if we obey him, are that we can have salvation. All of God's spiritual blessings are to be found in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, God keeps his promises, but they're conditional. From Israel forward, it's if you obey me, I'll reward you. If you disobey me and walk in rebellion, then I'll punish you. They learned the positive lesson at Jericho, and they learned the negative lesson of that at Achan and Ai. But we also see that God's ways are not man's ways. That's Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. Maybe Israel might have had their own thoughts if God had not led them. Achan certainly had his own thoughts, and he learned that when he goes his own way and not God's way, that it's hurtful to himself. But number four, we see that the faith that saves is a faith that obeys. That's why Jericho is remembered in Hebrews chapter 11. Their faith saved them because they were obedient. Achan did not obey. And thus he did not have the faith that Scripture speaks of. And Jericho is an example of the foolishness of God. Jericho shows us that God is, has a plan, and even though it doesn't make sense to us in any of its component parts, that we can trust that God's way is the right way, even if it seems foolish to us. Why does baptism save us? Why do we partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week? Why is it so important for us to come together and to fellowship and to worship God so faithfully? You see, God's ways may not always be that which we understand on the surface, but we know that God's ways, He calls His foolishness wiser than men. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25. When we consider what takes place on this day, we realize that God is trying to show us that sin is something that deeply and personally affects Him. That sin brings about a time when we should stop praying so that we can act and do what we know is right. That even though sin is something that happens to us, it invades the lives of others around us. We can't contain those ramifications. That sin's consequences, though, are inevitable. They're going to come. But sin also causes us to crave secrecy, and sin is a growing entity in our lives. There was a show on Food Network for a while called Hungry Games. I don't know if any of you ever saw that, but there was in that an attempt to try to help entrepreneurs to make the most money that they could in their 
restaurants. And on one of the episodes, they were trying to advise restaurants of the importance of selling French fries. French fries are cheap, and it's a great way to make money. And so in among the, the ways that they gave them as strategies, one of the things that they discovered was that restaurants who had menus in which they had a picture of a salad, that the French fry sales skyrocketed. Subconsciously, here's what took place. They were looking at the menu and they saw the salad and they felt like that just seeing the salad was, was a good thing. And subconsciously they thought, since I've seen that it's as good as I've, e I've eaten it, and so I'm going to indulge in these fatty fries. Do we sometimes think that way? I come and I assemble. I hear the word of God preached, but it doesn't change the way I live every day. Hearing is not the same as doing. They can learn that that day. As he was there among the folks at Jericho and he disobeyed God, he'd heard what Joshua was told and what was shared, but he didn't do it. And there's a memorial that's in place called the Valley of Trouble, 1 Chronicles 2.7, because Achan did not learn. Achan was conquered by sin. But why does God leave that in the Bible for us? Why do we have privy to that? It's because God wants us to be forewarned there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death, Proverbs 16, 25. If Achan could speak, he would say amen. God wants us not to repeat uh, the life of a man like Achan who was conquered by sin. And that's also why we see what happens next. Do you notice Nick has been singing songs about Jesus? Do you think about what happens after the defeat at Ai? They regroup, they do things God's way, they devise this masterful plan, and, and here's the faith of, uh, of uh, God's man, Joshua, who is able to get the sun to stand still in the valley of Ajalon, and God again does the incredible, the things that man could not do. God grants the victory through his grace and through his provision. But they needed their AI moment, their Achan moment, so that they could learn that when one man is conquered by sin, it's an example for what God does not want to happen in our lives. That's why he sent Jesus. The most incredible event in history, that God would become flesh. He would come and die in our place, would not stay in the grave, but be raised from the dead, that through his resurrection we can have the hope of eternal life. It's what he wants for all of us. It's his solution, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, to conquer the sin problem that all of us have. But he wants us not just to know it, he wants us to be obedient to the plan that comes out of it. Maybe you've not yet made that decision. Maybe you'd like to imitate the faith like we've talked about today of one who has obeyed the gospel by responding to God's grace and obedient faith, believing that Jesus is God's Son, repenting of sins, and allowing yourself to be baptized to have those sins washed away. As a child of God, it's very easy for us to find ourselves through the circumstances of life to depart from the light, to walk in darkness, 1 John 1 and verse 6. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God doesn't want anybody's story to end like Achan's. And through God's grace, it doesn't have to be that way. Maybe this morning someone needs to respond to heaven's invitation. If this is your invitation and you need to come, why not now? as we stand and sing.